Welcome to The Romantic Side of Suspense with Sarah Hemmerker. In each episode, she'll talk with your favorite romantic suspense authors. They will take you behind the scenes of the writing process, giving excerpts from their writing, and share stories about their writing life. Hello, and welcome to The Romantic Side of Suspense. I'm your host, Sarah Hemmerker, and I'm so glad you joined me. This episode, you're going to hear about this month's new releases in Christian Romantic Suspense. I hope you will enjoy hearing from your favorite Romantic Suspense authors as they talk about the background of their latest books. And next up, we have Tracy Abramson. She is going to be talking about her new book, Covert Ops. So welcome to my show, Tracy. Thanks so much for having me. Well, we're going to dive right in, and we're going to talk about the heroine, and how does she feel about love at the beginning of this, this story? So this is kind of a unique one um, because she actually starts out where she is engaged and she is so excited to finally be getting married. And of course, as often happens, they, she's going to hit some stumbling blocks throughout the book. Okay, so she's excited and we hope that excitement continues with the stumbling blocks. So that sounds like great yeah. tension. <laughs> so let's switch to our hero love ourselves a hero. Where did your hero grow up? So he grew up in the Midwest. He was an Iowa farm boy turned Navy SEAL. And then he ends up falling in love with this movie star slash television star. And needless to say, keeping their relationship out of the public eye is quite the challenge. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that. Navy SEALs don't really want the spotlight. (laughs) No, they don't. No, they don't. So let's switch to the setting. Um, why did you pick this, this setting for covert ops? So one of the things that is going on in the background of the story is actually a presidential election. So one of the point of view characters is the want to be president. So there's a lot of the setting is in D.C. and on the, on the campaign trail. But then a lot of the setting is also um, with these Navy SEALs on different missions. So my setting is really based on where it logically would make sense, where you might have some conflicts. So that is how it happened. Oh, interesting. And let's switch over to why you wrote this particular story. And I think you said it was part of a series. Is that correct, too? Yes. So this is part of, uh, it's called the Saint Squad series. And one of my beta readers was um, reading what the book that will be after Covert Ops, and she's like, well, what about the election? And what about these characters? They haven't gotten married yet. And I was like, oh, you're right. And so my friend, her name's Mandy Biesinger. She is the reason this book got written. It's just because she saw a gap in the series, and a lot of people really wanted to see what was happening with these characters. So, so even though it's a series, people can still read it as a standalone, but it's one of those fun things that, you know, of course, if you have the backstory, it's always a little more fun. Yeah, yeah, and I love it that, um, you know, we love our beta readers as authors especially, and those are the ones who read our books before they go out in the world to help us with, um, just help us with the stories and stuff. So I'm glad that you were able to to write that story for her. Me too. And it was actually dedicated to her, so she called me up. She's like, oh. I'm crying right now. So it was really cute. Oh, oh that's, that's so sweet. We love to give our, we love to give our readers love. Um, so exactly. let's close our little short time today with what's one thing you want readers to know about covert ops? I think probably the best, the, the thing I'd most like people to know is that this is actually, even though it's romance, it has suspense, it's actually very family friendly. So like readers from, you know, preteen on up to, you can be reading this with your grandma, you know, as an audio book and not be embarrassed. So I think that's one thing I'd love people to know is just it's just clean, wholesome, fun romance. And pumps. Uh, right. And those we got, we got Navy SEALs, ladies, so you know. Right. <laughs> That's always a good thing. Rather handsome Navy SEALs too. Yeah. Of course. Are there any other kind? That's what I want to know. No. All right. Well thanks for no, of course not. Now thanks for for being on my show and sharing uh, about covert ops. Thanks so much for having me. And next we have Patricia Bradley with her new book, Counter Attack. So welcome to my show. Thank you. I love being here. So we're just going to get right into it and talk about your heroine. 
Now, how did she or does she feel about love at the start of counterattack? She actually, she doesn't have time for it. She's too busy trying to become the first the first female chief of police in Chattanooga. So she really doesn't think that she has time. And besides, love's too painful. Yeah, yeah. I can see her her work ambitions are are kind of letting her not see the beauty of love. So, yeah. Right. Um, so let's talk about your hero because he's having trouble with love too. So what's holding him back from finding love? Well, she ditched him way back and he doesn't trust her and he really doesn't trust women in general because she ditched him. I mean, for no reason other than her ambition. She mm. she had a, a plan and he wasn't in it. All right. So let's switch to our villains. Um, so who or what does your villain love the most? And feel free to use the generic plural pronoun okay. if you want to cloak the identity even more. Well, the villain loves themselves most, but they they delude themselves into thinking they're getting revenge for a brother. Mm. And uh, so uh, that's, the, the best the villains drive. That was originally the villain's driving point was getting revenge for a brother, but then money took over. Ah, uh, yes, I can always complicate things. And not getting caught, and not right. getting caught, while at the same time calling the police about it. Right, right. Uh, so, um, what did you base your book? Where is your book based for the setting? It set it up above Chattanooga in the Cumberland Plateau. It's uh, it's a fictitious town, fictitious town. Because I got trying to figure out if a restaurant was on a particular street and what did they serve, and I thought, well, I'll just make up my own town. Well, I have to also remember that that what that restaurant serves later on in the book. Right. <laughs> it's it's, it's it just as hard. To... Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. It, it it was also a chance for me to go to the mountains. I love the mountains, and I've, I've basically, uh, I'm about to leave for a research trip up there again for the third book. Ah, oh, I'm with you on the mountains. I love the mountains. Okay, we can't get sidetracked. <laughs> We're talking about counterattack. Yeah, so, yeah, what was yeah. the hardest part of writing this particular book? Uh, getting in the head of the villain, that, that it, it's really hard to put myself there, but unless I do, uh, I'm, I can't know the motivation. I can't know their feelings. I mean, if, if you don't get in the head of the villain, if I don't get in the head of my villain, it becomes a cardboard, uh, like the the villain that says, you know, and where the ty- got the, has the heroin tied to the tracks. Mm. So they, 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 and I don't want that. I want the reader to understand and sympathize in a way. I mean, understand why the villain might do what they do. Ah, uh, yes, yes. To make it more realistic, because even villains right. have, you know, some positive, <laughs> a few positive right. things about and them. They are humans. They they are, and they have to be as strong or stronger in the beginning than the hero. Right. Uh, so, I mean, they, to do that, you have to know who they are and, and how they feel about things and, and why they're doing what they do. Yeah, but that that can be hard because we don't, you know, we're not evil Yeah, we don't people. want to put ourselves there. Yeah, <laughs> right. we, don't want to, we don't think that we might could do the same thing, too, in, the, yep. in given certain circumstances. Right, exactly. All right. Well, we're going to close with what's one thing you want readers to know about counterattack? Well, it's a book about redemption and forgiveness. Um, Both characters have to learn that lesson. Ah, Sounds wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk about it on my show today, Patricia. Thank you for having me. I love being here. And next we have Tosca Lee. She's going to be talking about the Long March Home. So welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, you wrote, this is a co-written book. So just uh, briefly tell us um, who your co-author is. 
Absolutely. So my co-author's name is Marcus Brotherton, and he's probably best known for his World War II biographies, nonfiction, and for his his um, his works uh, written with celebrities like Gary Sinise. Okay, great. Well, that must have been um, that must have been super fun. We did have a good time writing it, and I think that's key, right? So if you're going to spend a lot of time on a book, you you need to have fun. Yes, definitely. So let's dive in and give our listeners a little bit more about the Long March Home. So let's start with your heroine. How does she feel about love at the beginning of your story? Mm. So that's a really interesting question because the story has a dual timeline. And so Mm. the heroine in the story is a gal named Claire. At the beginning, Claire is 18 years old, and she is the love interest of the main character, Jimmy. Um, but because of our dual timeline, we get the opportunity to see Claire and Jimmy grow up together. And they knew mm. each other since they were babies. And so they grew up together. Their moms were best friends. Claire's younger brother, Billy, is one of Jimmy's best friends. So they're they're part of a group that hang out together. And so for her, love is something that's comfortable. It's homey. I mean, if you couldn't tell, she and Jimmy become involved. So. <laughs> They they know each other. Yeah, right. Spoiler alert. And so as Jimmy goes off to war, and this is a story, a World War II story, um, it's memories of Claire that sustain him. So for Claire, though, she's at home. She is, you know, back at home in Mobile, Alabama. And she, you know, love for her is is something that she, she grew up and grew into with Jimmy and it's something comfortable but it's also for her it's it's very pragmatic because these are two kids that grew up during the depression and so everything about their lives is is fairly pragmatic and so she's a very sensible practical girl and that's kind of how she approaches her emotional life as well. Oh, fascinating. So, let's talk about your hero. Where did uh where did he grow up? So, yeah, so Jimmy and Anne Claire and Billy, and then later their best friend, Hank, who comes along in third grade and completes the group, they all grew up in Mobile, Alabama, which is a, an area that I just, I love, and I loved learning more about the history of um, even the high school rivalries back in the 40s, mm. those show up, the football rivalries, those show up in the book too. Um, but Mobile, Alabama, and Jimmy is the main character. Jimmy Propfield is his name. He is the son of a pastor. His dad is the pastor of his church. And, um, yeah, so they grew up not too far from the shipyard, uh, riding their bikes and going fishing in the creek and crabbing as went well, and going frogging and I think they call it frog gigging actually when you go and catch mm-hmm. frogs, so doing all that good stuff in Mobile. Um, and well, let's switch to our villains because you know romantic suspense. We've got to have villains. Um, who or what mm. does your villain love the most? Yeah, so you know this because this is a World War II story, and I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, the three best friends, Jimmy, Hank, and Billy, end up going off to the Philippines where they're stationed mm. um, in 1941, which seems like paradise to them because, you know, it's hot in the afternoon, so they get the afternoon off, and at night they can go to the movies or they can go drink beer or whatever they want to do that, you know, they would all do at night. But... Um, and this this is all great until uh, Pearl Harbor gets bombed in December mm. and the Philippines is plunged immediately into war. And so um, they become enemies with Japan. And so they are fighting the Japanese in the Philippines from December until April when um, the the Allied surrender happens and the boys become prisoners of war. And they end up as part of the Bataan Death March, which is a a terrible, infamous chapter of history and where they are marched over 60 miles to a prisoner of war camp. And this prisoner of war camp is presided over by a a commander that they nicknamed to themselves, not to his face, the Mm -hmm. Crate. And the Crate is, is a very harsh guy. And as far as what he loves the most, he loves the idea of of his honor and 
of, of Japanese superiority and, and just being what it is that he's supposed to be. And so that's what I would say um, is, is his greatest mm-hmm. love, is trying to serve his country, uh, which automatically puts him at odds with the boys trying to serve right. theirs. Mm-hmm. So what what made you pick? I mean, obviously with the dual timeline, you have Sunset and mm-hmm. Mobile, and and then the rest yeah. in the Philippines. What made you What made you pick um, that yeah. story setting? You know, it's it's interesting. Um, my co-author Marcus and I had talked about it, and you know, we kind of had it set down in the in the South. And these boys are part of the thirty first Infantry, and there were young men who came from this area and and enlisted and served in the 31st infantry. So Mm. that just seemed like a natural place to have them come from. Of course, these, these, these soldiers came from all over, but um, we kind of traced it back down to the South. So we thought, let's do that. Um, Let's, let's put them um, and put them in Alabama where we could have them go to their favorite swimming holes as kids and do fun things like that. And um, and then of course you know they the Philippines is the historical part of it where right. they end up getting stationed yeah and so what why this particular story what was the genesis behind this story I mean obviously World War II offers mm-hmm. a lot of <laughs> a lot of options Absolutely. so why did why did you and Marcus pick this one great question so Marcus actually started the story seven years before he contacted me. He had been interviewing, uh, he's interviewed a lot of World War II veterans, Mm. and he's always been interested in oral histories. And so he was interviewing um, this one veteran who said, but those guys on Bataan, they had it really bad. And so that really made Marcus interested in what was going on in the Philippines and the Pacific Theater during World War II. And what was the Bataan situation? Well, the Bataan situation is when they became prisoners of war, they became part of the Bataan Death March. And so he started the story of these three best friends. And about seven years in, and he wasn't working on it full-time. He had a lot Mm -hmm. of projects in between. Um, We're both full-time writers. And so about seven years in, he contacted me, and he said, I've got this manuscript. Um, Would you like to come into the story and join me and work on this with me? And I was like, wow, I've never heard of this chapter of history before. I hadn't. And um, it sounded like a really important story to tell, and it is an important story to tell. And so that's how I entered um, the story situation and started working on it with him. And uh, it's been a huge honor to, to shine a light on these heroes. Yes, yeah. So we're going to cl- I wish we could talk more about it, but we're going to close right now with what is one thing you want readers to know about the long march home? Mm. One thing I want readers to know is that it is inspired by true accounts and true stories. And so we relied heavily on the the true stories that that were written about and reported by survivors later on. And even though it is fiction and even though our characters are made up, all of the stuff in the story really did happen. And so we really hope that readers will leave with a deep appreciation um, for our freedom and and what it costs for us to have it. Wow, that sounds like a really wonderful book. So uh, listeners, Mm -hmm. you can pick up your copy anytime now. So thank you for being on my show, Tosca. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Next up, we have Kelly Irvin. She is going to be talking about her latest romantic suspense, A Deadly Wilderness. So thanks for being on my show, Kelly. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So we're going to dive right in and start with, what does your heroine eat for breakfast? Well, since... Um, Suzanne lives in San Antonio in, in South Texas that uh, she obviously eats breakfast tacos. Um, she tries not to eat them every day. She has them on corn tortillas because we all know how many calories there are in those yummy flour tortillas. But um, if she can, she has a, a breakfast taco either with um, bacon and egg or um, potato and, and uh, egg. Oh, well, you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds delicious around here. I'm sure there is. And let's switch over to your hero. And what is his greatest fear in a deadly wilderness? 
Well, Ray is a widower. Uh, he lost his first wife uh, to cancer. And he has, it's been a long time, but he's managed to uh, work through that. And he's fallen uh, for Suzanne uh, really hard. And it's very difficult for him because he, he's afraid of going through that loss again. And uh, Suzanne is also, um, she's a widow. Her husband was a firefighter who died in the fire. And so she's not interested in having a relationship with somebody who's a police officer and goes out every day and risks his life. So he, he has a fear of loss, and so does she. Mm. Well, that's going to make for some interesting uh, romantic interactions, yes, <laughs> I think. It does. Very. All right, so let's talk about your villain. Um, does he or she have a redeeming quality? And if so, what is it? Well, yeah, um, Lava is an interesting fellow. I had a great time writing him. He's a cold-blooded, psychopathic uh, assassin. He gets paid to kill people. But I think it's really important for us to see that uh, all people have, you know, well-rounded characters, uh, mm-hmm. traits. And so uh, Lalo, uh, his redeeming quality is that he loves his wife. And he's mm-hmm. very careful to take care of her. He tries to get home and eat with her. Um, she's staying with him in San Antonio. She doesn't know anybody. So he makes it a point to get home and have lunch with her. Yeah, that that is definitely redeeming quality. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then you, you've already kind of mentioned the story setting, um, San Antonio, Texas. Why did you pick that setting? Well, in this particular case, it's actually a, a lot of it takes place in city parks in San Antonio. And I was the public relations uh, di- uh, director for, or manager for the parks department in San Antonio for more than 20 years. And so I spent a lot of time in San Antonio parks and I just, you know, I love them and they're very safe places, but I kept thinking, yeah, some of these parks would make a really good place to hide a body. Um, <laughs> so, so it kind of grew out of that. Um, I, I swear the parks are, are, are safe places, but they make really good settings, especially the wilderness park. Yeah, that's that's great. I, I, I think most readers should know if they don't don't already that we we especially we're romantic suspense writers are always thinking about things like that. Yeah, we are, and uh, it's. Uh, I've written several books now where uh, some really well known places in San Antonio have um, been the the site of murders, and I'm sure that I have some uh, politicians who don't appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> So let's switch to the writing part of it. For you, what was the easiest part of writing this particular story? I think the fun uh, part of it was uh, really the development of Ray's character because I didn't set out. um, He actually um, made an appearance in an earlier book that I wrote that didn't get published. He was supposed to be the sidekick, the the partner, and he just Mm. kept taking over the scenes. I had no intention of writing a cowboy from East Texas. I've never even been to East Texas, but this guy just kept stealing the scenes and I finally decided he needed to have his own book because uh, he is just, he's a super guy and I don't use the, the phrase very often of swoon worthy, but Ray definitely fits the bill. I had a good time writing him. Oh, excellent. Excellent. So we're going to wrap up our little time together, Kelly, with what's one thing you want readers to know about a deadly wilderness? It may have some difficult uh, scenes. It does have some difficult scenes to, to read. Uh, they were difficult to write. There's some pretty uh, graphic scenes, um, but I want readers to know that there is um, a, a strong storyline that involves overcoming fear of loss, and there's a beautiful love story, and um, I just think that if they'll um, hang in there uh, in typical romantic suspense fashion, they'll get... Uh, the satisfaction of the the uh, story being um, consummated in a way that is very satisfactory. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing about A Deadly Wilderness on my show today, Kelly. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Next up, we have Anne Gabhart, and she's going to be talking about her book, In the Shadow of the River. So thanks for being on my show, Anne. Oh, it's great. I'm glad to be here. So let's just dive right in so the readers can get a flavor for what the book is about. Let's talk about your heroine first. Why did you pick her particular name? 
Well, there's some sad circumstances about my main character's birth. Her father was killed in a steamboat explosion before she was born. And Jacy's mother wanted her friend, who was helping her uh, with the birth, pick a name. But the friend wanted the mother to pick the name. When Kelly, a riverboat gambler who stepped in to be Jacy's father, showed up, he said if they wouldn't name the baby, he would. He tried a few names they wouldn't accept and then came up with Jason's, which is a jewel, and he said was perfect for this jewel of a baby. That got shortened to J.C. with soft C's. Oh, that's really neat. I love how hearing how names get get picked. That's that's. I think our listeners will enjoy learning that. So let's switch over to our your hero. Every romance story or romantic suspense story has a hero. So where did your hero grow up? Well. My book starts with J.C. as a five-year-old, but then we slip over time to when she's 20. And so we have the hero is Gabe Kingston, and he was born on a showboat and has lived on the showboat all his life. His family, the Kingstons, have been going up and down the river, stopping at a different landing every day from, say, March in the spring until October or November when they ended up in New Orleans. And they give this show for local people, usually farmers and small village residents. He loves being on the showboat and can't imagine life where the river isn't running under his feet for nine or ten months a year. Oh, wow. That is a very interesting interesting place to grow up. And so um, we're romantic suspense authors, so we have villains. So that our villains sometimes have redeeming qualities. So what's one redeeming quality about your villain? Well, I had a little trouble uh, figuring this one out, but the villain of the story is talented and a good entertainer, and that's why he's a good fit on the showboat. Yeah. All right. Well, I know. That's that's great. Um, so what about the challenge of writing the book on this setting? It sounds like you have a lot of it setting on the Mississippi, um, in, you know, on showboats. What was challenging about that? Well, it is set on the showboat. It's actually... Uh, all, all of my story takes place while they're still on the Ohio River. They oh, Ohio River, okay. And, well, they would eventually get to the Mississippi and then go on down south to New Orleans. But my particular story is on the Ohio River because I usually write, uh, set my books in Kentucky, and it didn't work for the Kentucky River. But I have them landing on the Kentucky side of the Ohio River. But my biggest challenge was trying to get my mind around the size and different parts or places on a showboat the theaters they had on those showboats in the early 1900s and late 1800s could hold sometimes a thousand people, so wow. that had to be really big. And then the actors and crew all had rooms, and there were dressing rooms and a galley. They had three decks with a top one called the Hurricane Hurricane Deck, and there was a pilot house on it. And the boarding planks were called stages of all things. So you might be able to see why my head was spinning a little trying to picture all that and place my characters here and there for my students. But there was the river, and I did like the feeling of floating along, enjoying the breeze off the water, seeing the country sliding by, and having the feeling of always being going somewhere new. Oh, yeah, that is fascinating. I I, I love as authors we get to learn about learn about so many different things when we write. So what was it about this story that drew you and made you want to tell this story about a showboat on, a, on the Ohio River? Well, I've written a lot of historical novels, and as I said, all of them have a Kentucky setting because I suppose I'm a Kentuckian, and I know more about Kentucky weather and people than I do other things. So when I finished my last book, I was searching for a new idea and by that, by doing that, I was leafing through some Kentucky uh, history books and other things, and I happened to come across pictures of steamboats, excursion boats, and showboats. The more I read about the showboats and how most of them were owned by families who acted in the shows and served as crew at times, the more entranced I became. I sometimes call my book Small Town Stories. The Kingston Floating Palace was a different kind of small town, but it still had that small-town feel with characters staying on the showboat for months. Then I wanted to stir in a little suspense and mystery, and that's how the idea grabbed my imagination and eventually became my story in the shadow of a river, of the river, excuse me. Yeah, no, I love I love how hearing how authors come up with their ideas. So um, 
we're going to close our little interview with what is your book's tagline? If all the world's a stage, J.C. will play her part. She only hopes her story does not turn out to be a tragedy. Oh, I love that. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing about In the Shadow of the River and being on my show, Anne. It was fun. Thanks for inviting me. Next up, we have Stefina H. McGee, and she's going to talk about her latest romantic suspense, The Swindler's Daughter. So welcome to my show, Stefina. Hi, thank you for having me today. We're going to start with your heroine. So what does she eat for breakfast in The Swindler's Daughter? Well, Lillian is all about pastries and baking. So for Lillian, she's going to have a nice hot cup of coffee and maybe a hot biscuit that she just made or um, some kind of cherry turnover. Oh, can she come cook for me? Because that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) So let's switch to your hero. Where did your hero grow up? So Jonah is from Dawsonville, which is the uh, little town that Lillian ends up in. And he grew up taking care of his mother and his two sisters after his father passed when he was 16. Ah, so he knows a few things about women, if he paid attention. Yeah, well, (laughs) he tries, but I'm not sure he's doing too well just yet. (laughs) Ah, I love that tension. Um, So let's switch over to your villain. Who or what does your villain love the most? Well, he is all about having power. Um, He is the partner for Lillian's father. So when her father dies and leaves this company to Lillian, uh, he is not too thrilled about a woman coming in to have any sort of say in this business. So he's all about power and money and control. Oh. Now, um, it sounds like you may you based based this in a real place. So um, if so, what what did you change to, to make it fit your story? When I was looking at Dawsonville, I talked to the Historical Society, and they gave me some awesome books, um, and I found this really pretty courthouse. But it didn't say anything about the sheriff's office or where there would be a jail, and I needed both of those things for my story. So I sort of added one uh, next to mm-hmm. the courthouse, and I thought it made sense with, you know, kind of the layout of the town. But as far as I could find... If there was one there, it wasn't there next to the courthouse. Well, now that's the fun thing about fiction. We can we can we can um, smudge those facts a little bit. <laughs> a little so bit we can too. add and adjust things if we need to. <laughs> yeah, whether you're writing historical or contemporary, that that's the fun of it. We can we can move things. So um, so mm-hmm. if you go to Dawsonville, there was there won't be the sheriff's office where you said it was back when you when your story set. So. Just a note for readers. (laughs) So let's talk about the underlying positive message of The Swindler's Daughter. Uh, This story is a lot about what do you do when life doesn't turn out the way you expected? Um, How do you handle the curveballs? So in this story, both Lillian and Jonah are going to get some circumstances that neither one were expecting. Um, It seems like everything is going wrong. And, you know, at one point, uh, Melanie, which is Jonah's mother, she says, you know, maybe sometimes if everything is going wrong, then maybe we're doing something right. And so the story is about uh, going through those struggles and handling um, what to do uh, when maybe God's plan isn't what your plan was. Oh, I love that because isn't that so true in our own lives and in um, so that's always good to see how, even though they're not real people, <laughs> they still handle <laughs> things in a real way. So I love that's what I love about fiction. We're able to to kind of show that in our stories. So let's close our yeah, short absolutely. interview with your book's tagline. Okay. So we have a cache of family secrets, um, a uh, a history of uh, family lies and a surprise inheritance. Oh, that's great. So you can pick up The Swindler's Daughter this month. And thank you, Stefina, for being on my show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And now we have Robin Patchen. 
she's going to talk about her new book, Vengeance in the Mist. So welcome to my show, Robin. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So we're going to dive right in and start talking about your heroine. So how does she feel about love at the beginning of Vengeance in the Mist? Well, so her name is Misty, and she does not trust love because her dad was abusive, and her mother stuck with him for all those years, and she just thinks love is kind of dangerous and scary and really kind of stupid. But um, her sisters have both found love, and so she's starting to think, maybe not all men are like my father. So she's, at the beginning of the story, she's starting to think, maybe there's a possibility that I could fall in love someday. Ah, cue enter the hero. <laughs> exactly, which is a, exactly. Which is a good, uh, good timing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but what is your hero fear? What is his greatest fear at the, uh, in your story? His greatest fear is failure. He was raised in a family of high achievers. His father is a super high achiever, and that is just an expectation in his family. So his greatest fear is failure and his greatest desire is the opposite of that, which is to be super successful. So at the beginning of the story, he's sort of, he's a prosecutor. He and Misty work together. They're both prosecutors. So at the beginning of the story, he's sort of dreaming about being a DA or maybe being the governor. She's got these great big dreams because he's really just desperate to be, to prove that he's worthy through his achievements. Mm. All right, so let's switch over to our villain. So who or what does Um, your villain love the most? Oh, gosh. My villain loves himself more than anything in the Mm. world. And we don't get to know him very much in the story, but he is a total narcissist. He thinks that there's no good, there's no bad, there's, um, there's no good or evil, there's power, and there are people who don't have power. Um, so that is, so that's his thing. He loves himself and he is only out for himself. Mm. Well, that's, that's just, I can almost picture the tension, (laughs) the tension building in this book. Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a fun one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about the challenge. What challenge did you find in writing the book in the setting that you gave it? Well, you know, the biggest thing was that I wrote my book about two prosecutors who work at Suffolk County um, in Massachusetts, which is Boston. And, you know, that's an actual place with actual yeah. people who actually work there and, you know, actual buildings and actual court and actual judges. So I just had to be really careful. I had to make sure, you know, I looked at the names of the people who worked there. I was trying to make sure there were not, nothing that overlapped. I don't want anyone to think that I wrote this about actual people. You know, there's an actual VA mm-hmm. and, um, you know, it's not just my fictional person who is not a great guy necessarily, but, um, but anyway, so that was one of the biggest things is, is having to make sure that I stayed true to the, the place, the setting, and um, also I was honoring the people who are actually live there and are doing the hard work of being prosecutors in Boston. Yeah, and I guess you probably didn't want to accidentally use someone's name. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we've all had that. We've had a name. We're like, oh, and then we Google it. We're like, nope, nope, can't do that. <laughs> it's always a good idea to Google those names. <laughs> right, when you're writing about something with that, that specific mm-hmm. setting. So let's mm-hmm. talk about um, one of the things I love about writing uh, Christian romantic suspense is the positivity we get to infuse, even as we write about dangerous situations and stuff. So in your book, what is the underlying positive message of this story? You know, I I love this question. Um, I think that for this story, it is the idea that we can only do what we can do. We can only do our best. And there are certain things that are out of of our control. And so in Tate's, um, you know, he wants to achieve and he wants to, he has these big dreams, but there are certain things that are out of his control. He has to choose. Sometimes you have to do the right thing, even if it's hard and even if it means you lose something. And in Misty's case, she has this, this almost fear, this fear that she's going to let somebody out on the street who's going to do something evil. She takes that responsibility on herself. Mm-hmm. So if someone gets released, she thinks, and then they, you know, they kill someone. She takes that. She thinks, I shouldn't have let that happen. And so the message for both of them, I think, and hopefully for the reader, is that it's not your job to do everything, that there's a God and he's in control, and you can only do what you can do, and then you have to take your hands off it and trust that God's got it. Um, oh, I so love that. Kind of, like, I, yeah, yeah. It's a good message for all of us, Robin. 
All right, we're going to close with what is one thing you want readers to know about Vengeance in the Mist? Well, you know, um, I keep telling every, I have been saying all along, this is my last book in the series. There's not going to be any more books in the series. And then I realized that's not true. Um, because <laughs> I, my last book, um, Courage in the Shadows, I introduced a character and I had already written that character's story. And I decided as I was writing that book, oh, this character is that character from that story that I've already written. So I'm going to release a bonus book this summer that tells the story of um, the, the character in Courage in the Shadows was named Grant, and it's his oldest brother. His, ex, his oldest brother was murdered. So this is the story of what happened to the rest of their family. So anyway, that's, it's kind of, I'm calling it a Coventry bonus book because it doesn't actually take place anywhere near Coventry, um, but it's some mm. of the same characters. So, um, oh, good. So, so people. <laughs> So this isn't the end, people, so keep that in mind. <laughs> this is almost yeah. the end, though. Then almost the end. <laughs> All right, well, thank you, uh, Robin, so much for being on my show. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Next up, we have Kimberly Woodhouse, who's going to talk about her book, The Heart's Choice, which is co-written by Tracy Peterson. So welcome to my show, Kimberly. Thank you. So what did your heroine want to be when she grew up? And did she become that person? When she was younger, she really wanted to fight for justice. But since this is a historical, um, back then women really didn't have a lot of options, right, for working. Mm-hmm. And so she was an avid, avid reader and loved books and loved mysteries. So She really didn't understand exactly what she wanted to be, but she really wanted to do something with the law because she witnesses a crime when she's a little girl, and that just affects everything in her life. So what she ends up becoming is the first female court stenographer in Kalispell, Montana. Wow, that's great. Um, And so let's switch to your hero. Where did he grow up? Well, he grew up on ranches with his father down in Colorado, and then they moved to Kalispell. So he grew up on the ranch in Kalispell, and his nickname was Cowboy. But he had a deeper desire to do something, and he wanted uh, to become the head of a library. And so that's what he actually does. Even though his father really wants him to take over the ranch, he does something very different for a man of his time. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, and let's switch over to our villain, because even historical romantic suspenses have villains. So yes. why did you decide to make this person the villain of your story? He is a schmoozer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he is a manipulator, and he has played off of his good looks for decades to get away with some pretty horrific crimes. And he's kind of honed his his craft, I would say, so that he could make the most money and be the laziest at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Unfortunately, those people do exist <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in real life. So let's switch to the story setting. So why did you pick this particular setting for this historical romantic suspense? Well, Tracy and I were living um, in Montana at the time. In fact, we only lived like a mile and a half apart. And we have been dear, dear friends for 20-plus years. And we've been writing together for a long time. (laughs) So... um, it is, it's just been a wonderful thing for our, our friendship to be together. And we just, my husband and I loved going to Kalispell when we lived in Montana. That was our little getaway place. And so Tracy and I took a trip up there and just had a blast researching. And what we wanted to do with this series is something a little bit different. We're actually using some um, real historical locations in Kalispell mm-hmm. as kind of like the backdrop for the story. So this story has the Carnegie Library, which a lot of people oh. don't realize that Carnegie um, built libraries across the United yes. States. Um, I didn't know that. Fact. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The library is still there, and it's a 
it's the Hockaday Museum of Art now, but it still says Carnegie, and the people there were great, gave us a great tour. Um, the second book takes place in the historic train depot, which is now the Chamber of Commerce, and then book three takes place in the Macintosh Opera House, which is still there. Um, it's not occupied because there was a fire decades and decades ago, but the owner of the building, he has a very beautiful store underneath, and he gave us the privilege of, um, I was able to go up and, and see it, even in the kind of the, the ruins state, you know, that it's in, but you can still imagine, you know, what mm. it was like in its heyday. So it's a lot of fun to use places like that just kind of as a backdrop in the in the story. Yes, yeah, I can, yeah, definitely adds that local flavor and authenticity. Yes. So why this particular story? Why did you want to write this story? Um, there's a lot of people in my life who have dealt with some serious things in their past. You know, something happened to them and it affected every step of their journey after that. Mm. And we really wanted to bring Rebecca through that because she witnesses something as a child and she can't stop it and then they don't believe her. Um, she knows that she has seen an innocent man that gets convicted of a, of a crime and her heart after that is just totally, you know, for the underdog and always, you know, making sure that innocence, you know, gets justice. And for me, it just, it really affected me under, you know, hearing friends' stories, understanding what people have gone through, and just really kind of putting on the skin of this character and understanding her passion and what's behind it. And she's just, she's a great character. And we also have some side characters that will be through the whole series. They're an older couple, and they're just hilarious. So we had a lot of fun with, <laughs> with Marbella yeah. and the judge. Great. So we're going to close this part of our interview with uh, what is the Heart's Choices tagline? They must uncover the truth before it's buried forever. Ooh, that's good. Well, thank you again for being on my show, Kimberly. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And next we have Danny Petrie, and she's going to be talking about the shifting current. So welcome to my show, Danny. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So we're just going to dive right in, haha, for your book, mm -hmm. and uh, start with, what does your heroine eat for breakfast? So she's a smoothie girl, and her favorite is a favorite of mine, actually. It's chocolate, protein powder, peanut butter, and banana, and it's really yummy. Oh, so do you have that for breakfast, too? I do often, yep. Yeah, so I kind of envision Emmy doing the same thing with smoothies. Yeah, lovely. Um, so let's switch to your hero. What's his greatest fear in the shifting current? Yeah, his greatest fear is one he's had for basically since he was a child, and it's his fear that he'll never be forgiven for a past tragedy. Mm. Yeah, I think we all have that fear <laughs> sometimes. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to talk about the villain. Who or what does your villain love the most? And feel free to not tell us, give away who it is if you need to. Right. Absolutely. No, the villain's, um, what he loves the most is getting revenge. Um, I won't say exactly on who or why, but getting revenge, and he's doing it um, basically by um, a means of garnering money. I'll put it that way without giving too much away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not let's not give away too much away. So, what about your story's setting? What what was it about it that made you decide this setting for this story? Sure. So, I decided I wanted Emmy and Logan. They're part of the Coastal Guardian series that's set in Wilmington, North Carolina, and I decided I wanted them away and kind of off on their own adventure. So I set it in New Mexico where I lived for seven years. Um, and my husband and I grew up about an hour apart on the East Coast, but we happened to meet in New Mexico. Um, <laughs> we had it crazy. 
even more crazy, he was in the Navy there, so go figure that one. But um, he was working on his degree, and we were both at the University of New Mexico. And we just loved it there. There was so much beauty in it. Um, and it's such a different place. I thought it would be really fun to set it there. Yeah, no, and we'll have to get your story later because that sounds fascinating. <laughs> I love I love meet cute stories, but that's the off topic. Off topic. Okay, so the, the shifting right. current back to the storyline. So, um, why did you want to write this particular story? So uh, this particular story actually came about by readers. Um, mm-hmm. I loved Logan and Emmy, and I really wanted to tell their story. But it was, you know, a three-book plan, three-book contract, and it finished, and er- so many people emailed me and said, is there a book for? I need Emmy and Logan's story. I need Emmy mm-hmm. and Logan's story. And they, it just kept literally coming in, and I love that they wanted to know more. So um, I got permission to go ahead and tell their story, and uh, that's how the shifting current came about was by my readers. So I'm really grateful they asked for it and that I got to tell the story. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it um, when readers – so readers, if you have suggestions, let us know. We sometimes actually will use them if we can. We love to hear them, though. Right. So what – yeah, so what is one thing you want readers to know about the shifting current? I, I'd like them to know that nobody is beyond forgiveness, that, you know, God loves us, and when we ask for forgiveness, he graciously gives it because of um, what has been paid by his son. And so none of us are beyond God's forgiveness or compassion. Oh, that's such a positive message. Sometimes I think we write, you know, romantic suspense and, <clears throat> you know, we, we know, there's bad guys and bad things happen, but I love that as Christian right. romantic suspense authors, we can allow that, those such positive messages to resonate with our characters and hopefully our readers. And I know they always resonate with me as a writer, too. Absolutely, yes. I think that's the beauty of Christian fiction is that even though there are some, you know, darker elements with the suspense, but um, the stories, there's hope in them because of Christ. So I love yeah. that about romantic suspense, too. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on my show, talking about The Shifting Current. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Romantic Side of Suspense with Sarah Hammerker. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. You can sign up to receive notifications of upcoming podcasts and listen to previous editions at sarahhammakerfiction.com.